Our reading today is from Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. Um, The title is Jesus at the Temple. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, uh, raise your hand. Diana can bring you one. All set. Jesus at the Temple. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. Oh, I had some complaints about French fries making you hungry. Don't worry, we won't be on this slide for too long. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for time together. Thank you for time in your word. Uh, Would you satisfy us? Would you uh, fill us up? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was a great intro to my sermon, Jenny. I don't know if you intended to do that, but it's all about consumer Christianity, right? Uh, Needing to uh, consume something, wanting something, uh, being being hungry, not being satisfied. I think we can all identify uh, with that, uh, right? We we all get caught into the, the cycle of just consuming and wanting more and more and never feeling satisfied. And I thought maybe we could play a little game to start out uh, the service where I would ask you a question, you come up with an answer in your mind, so no one's going to be grading you on this, of, it's like a how much question. So how much this, and you think of an answer, uh, and it all has to do with consumption. Uh, so the first one is, how many cars and trucks do you think Americans bought in 2017? So cars and trucks, last year, get it in your mind. Maybe you can whisper it to your neighbor. You can, you can tell them what you think. You have a number in your mind. Uh, so the, so on the, I, I, I quizzed uh, Terry and John on the way down to the, this is essential Bible knowledge here. Uh, I quizzed them on the, the way down to the retreat. And uh, John, I think, said 20 million and then Terry said 15 million, but then admitted that he thought in his mind 1 million. Uh, but then when he heard John, so maybe your answer is changing because of your neighbor. Uh, the correct answer is 17.3 million. So 17.3 million cars and trucks last year, Americans bought. All right, so if you got that one wrong, that's okay. Here's another try. How, many, how much did, uh, did we spend domestically on movies? So the, the cost of going to the movies, how much did, did we spend to go to the movies in 2017? Okay, you got a number in your, your head? All right, the answer is $11 billion. Anyone get that right, roughly? Ten, ooh, good guess. Did anyone get the cars and trucks one right? 17.3, a couple nodding, okay. All right, so this one's a little bit more challenging. Now, I couldn't find one for last year, so this is in 2014. So if you can remember back in history, I mean, that's a long time ago, four years ago. Uh, 2014, how much did Americans spend on donuts in 2014? 
All right, get that number in your head. <laughs> Billions. All right, you have it in your head? Okay, the answer is $581 million. Anyone close to that? No, no one. Okay, so this is the last one. This one's not a money question. This one's a, uh, an item. How many Cokes, so Cokes, the, the Coke drink, Coca-Cola, are consumed each day globally? Globally. Okay. You got that number in your head? Okay. The answer is every day, 1.9 billion Cokes are consumed. Anyone get that? It's a lot of consumption, right? It amazes us. It's interesting. This is the things, it's fascinating to know like how much do we consume. And then you're like, oh, well, I, can, I contributed 20 bucks to Dunkin' Donuts, Blueberry, Blueberry Glazed Donuts. Like I, I helped contribute to those donuts. And it's so easy to buy stuff, right? We have smartphones. You can order stuff on your smartphone. I have an Amazon Dash button for a couple items. Like, it's literally just a button that you press, and then something shows up at your house. It's very dangerous. People accidentally hit that button all the time, and I have stuff show up at my house. But it's this idea that we can get whatever we want. Like, we're, we're the priority. I can, I can have whatever I want. I can get whatever I want whenever I want it because I am the center of the universe. And then we come to the Bible, and we find a radically different story. <laughs> we find a story that says, I am not the center. God is the center. God is what's different. And yet, we've been trained every day for years and years to approach life through consumption. What can I get out of life for me? And so we often take that mentality, that approach, and we come to God and say, God, what can I get out of you for me? What's in this for me? I want to be a Christian? Well, you have to convince me. What can I get out of Christianity? Well, eternal life, that's pretty good. Can I also get like a, a nice house, <laughs> a fast car? Maybe I can just get like health. God, if you would give me health and happiness, that, that'll make me happy. That I will feel like I have gotten something out of this deal. What do, what do you come to God with and say, God, like, I'll follow you, but if you could just do this, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Sometimes this is how we approach God in our prayers, right? God, it's good to talk to you this evening. Here's my laundry list of things that I would like you to accomplish for me in my life. There's a little bit of consumerism in that, isn't there? There's a little bit of God satisfying me and my wants. Uh, the University of North Carolina, they did a study. They asked teenagers, so I'm not picking on teenagers tonight. They just kind of asked teenagers. I think this reflects everyone uh, about their view of God and religion. Like, what do, what do teenagers think of God and religion? And there's this quote. Um, it's in a book. They concluded that most American teens view God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. And teens were primarily concerned with one's own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, or serving others. This was the religion of most teens, the researchers concluded, because it is also the form of religion practiced by their parents. Americans want a God who will serve our needs, fix our problems, and help us achieve our 
goals. See, we want a God who kind of fits into our box. We want a God who satisfies our wants. And yet, as we come to the Bible, as we come to Jesus, we're going to get a radically different call. A call to come and follow him, a call to, to look to him in who he is to satisfy us. To not look at the things that he can provide for us, but to look at the person. To not like, look at the hands and all the, the gifts that he can give us, but to look into his eyes. And to have a relationship with the, with the one who truly can satisfy us. So I'm going to talk a little bit different. Uh, I'm not, not going to continue to focus on all those ways that we, that we don't satisfy ourselves. I want to focus now on kind of what is wrong with consumer Christianity. That's the, the title of our sermon. That's, that's what this idea is. Because at the end of the day, what's wrong with God helping us out? What's wrong with going to God and when we're in a tough spot? I don't think it's wrong to pray, and I want, I want to hear that. God, it's wrong for me to pray. No, absolutely not. But today in our text, Jesus addresses what's wrong, and it's not pretty. He has finally come to Jerusalem, so we're in, uh, we're in Luke chapter 19. And kind of through the, the rest of the Gospel of Luke, it's building up to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to the, the book of Luke in 2019 to really focus on the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection. But for now, we're going to look at these few verses in uh, Luke chapter 19. So he's come to Jerusalem. The triumphant entry has already happened. And then shortly after that, he walks up the steps and into the temple courtyard, and Jesus makes a scene. Luke 19, verses 45 through 46. So you can look at the text, and you can look at your Bible, verses 45 through 46. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what does Jesus do? He comes in and he drives out the merchants, those people who are selling the goods. Now, if you read, there's, there's three different uh, gospel accounts. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Mark, and there's a kind of a different story in John that has a, a very similar feel to it. But if you look at Matthew and Luke, Jesus also drives out the buyers. And then it says in Matthew and Mark, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So there was lots of different currencies. There was different monies in the different regions in the ancient Near East in this time. And when you came to the temple, well, there was kind of one accepted coin. It was called the Tyrian shekel. And it wasn't a Roman shekel, but it did have an image. It had an image of it on the coin of a false god named Melkart. And these were the, the, the coins that were used at the temple. And the people that would exchange the, the coins from like the foreign regions to this other coin, they were the money exchangers, and they could charge a fee for changing the money. Uh, kind of an exchange rate, a, a spread. And if they wanted to rob you, if they wanted to take advantage of you, what do you do? You just charge a lot of money for that exchange. 
So it was a very simple way for the, the temple, for traders, for the people to grow wealthy. And so those coming that were traveling miles and miles, they didn't really have a choice, these pilgrims. And so you could take advantage of someone in their desperation. And so what is wrong with consumer Christianity? Well, the first thing is that it takes advantage of others. See, we as Christians can approach the faith as a way to get ahead and even make money and not honor God. And this takes advantage of others. Even in the church, we can do this. I heard recently a story of a church member, not in this church, so you can breathe out a sigh of relief, uh, borrowing thousands of dollars from another church member's and then disappearing. (laughs) There was a reason for that. There's more to this story, but taking advantage financially of others. And I'm sure you've all heard of called prosperity gospel preachers that say, oh, if you come to Jesus, like he'll meet all your wants, he'll meet all your desires, he'll meet all your, your needs. He'll give you that nice car. He'll give you that nice house. Well, this takes advantage of others. Usually those, those kind of sales pitches are based on giving your money to them so they can get their nice house. This is not of Christ. If Christ would encounter those people today, he would overturn their tables. He would drive them out. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus also ta- targets the dove sellers. So the doves... There were, there were different sacrifices. When you made a pilgrimage to the temple, you could bring certainly your animals, but you might come from a long distance away. And you could purchase animals there, and you could purchase you know, cattle, you could purchase uh, sheep, you could purchase doves. And it was the poorer people that had to purchase the doves because they couldn't afford the larger sacrifices. Jesus comes from a poor family. So when Jesus went to the temple, they went and they purchased two turtle doves, or um, uh, two young pigeons. And at, at least one point in Jewish history, the prices were so exorbitant on these doves, like they were, they were jacked up, they were raised just to take advantage of the poor, that, that it cost like a, a gold shekel to buy a dove. Apparently this was a, a lot of money. And so one rabbi said, well, you only need one dove instead of like the five for the sacrifice. And the, the, the prices just immediately dropped on the doves. But you can be sure that if this happened once, it probably happened other times. It's amazing how sin causes us to take advantage of even the poor. Of a desire for more can, can create in us a, uh, uh, an opportunity to take care of the, the uh, to, to take advantage of the least of these. When Jesus says, you have made my house a den of robbers, he's quoting an Old Testament book. He's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, verse 11. And this, this chapter, uh, it's, a, it's, a kind of a, it's about the temple. But in it, Jeremiah calls out the oppressors. He calls out the oppressors of the foreigners, the fatherless, and of the widows. He calls out those who steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods. So someone is a robber if they're oppressing others, uh, you know, the poor, the, the, the most at risk. But they're also robbers if they're cheating God of his glory. 
if they're worshiping other things, worshiping false idols. It's interesting that the shekel they used at the temple had a, an image of a false god on it. And so what is Jesus doing? He's cleansing the temple. He's driving out those that take advantage of others. He's driving out that, that false idolatry. And it's kind of comforting to know that well, if Jesus is in our lives, he's going to drive out our false idolatry too. He's going to drive out the ways that we take advantage of others. And as Christians and as a church, we can do this. We can take advantage of others unintentionally, maybe with the best of intentions. I can do this as the pastor of this church. I, I, I want to encourage people that come to church regularly, to attend faithfully. I think it's important because I think it's an act of obedience to the Scripture. But at the same time, part of me wants that because I want the, the, the chairs to be full. <laughs> I want there to be a big crowd because it makes me feel successful as a pastor. And we can do this in other ways too, right? I come to church for the fellowship. Actually, I, you know, the fellowship, the gossip to talk about what's going on. Well, that's, that's taking advantage of others. I come to church for the great worship experience because it just makes me feel alive. Well, what about God? Where's God in that mix? I come to church because it feels good to serve. Well, that's true. Worship, serving, fellowship, these aren't bad things, but if it becomes about me and not about actually loving God, then we are suddenly using Christianity to take advantage of others. We don't want to do that. We don't want to commit idolatry. And the second thing that consumer Christianity does is it prevents others uh, from worshiping. It prevents true worship. Now, there's some debate among scholars. This is probably something that doesn't have a lot of impact uh, in your life, but there's some debate among scholars whether Jesus drove out the merchant in, so this is, a, this is a, a picture of the temple courtyard, whether he drove them out in the court of the Gentiles, just kind of the big open area, or if he drove them out in the royal stoa, which is where typically there was more buying and selling of animals. And for the temple economy to work, like, it, it made sense that there would be animals around. But I actually think Jesus drove uh, these money changers out of the court of the Gentiles, of the Gentiles uh, because of Jesus' focuses on the prayer. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. Well, he's quoting from Isaiah. So we're going to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 56. And this is a prophecy that Isaiah is giving the people of Israel. And if you know the structure of the book of Isaiah at all, chapters 1 through like 39 are about like God's coming judgment. That there will be destruction and the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple has been destroyed and then you get into the second half of Isaiah, and there's some restorative themes in the second half of the book. But when Isaiah gives this prophecy in Isaiah 56, essentially the temple is in a state of destruction. 
And so it's about a coming time when the people will return to the temple. And in this promise, God says to treat foreigners a certain way. So it's not all about the Israelites. It's also about the foreign nations. So Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6, says this. And it says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. See, God is making a promise, not just to the Israelites, but to the foreign nations, the foreigners, which we call Gentiles, you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile person. And he's, he's making a promise that if you'll come to the Lord, you can come to that holy mountain, that, that temple, which is the mountain where Jerusalem was built, specifically the temple mount. He intends foreigners to come. God intends for Gentiles to come and to worship at his temple. And so when they actually build the temple, there's a court for the foreigners. (laughs) There's a court for the Gentiles to come and to worship and to pray. So when Jesus quotes this passage, I think he's in the court of the Gentiles, and he's saying, you're you're making it impossible. You have your, your, your merchandising, you're buying, you're selling. You're making it impossible for the Gentiles, for the foreigners to worship in my house, (laughs) I think there's also a little bit a little element here of perhaps you're confusing the nations of what my house is all about. My house is not to be about buying and selling. My house is about holiness and worshiping me and encountering the true and living God. See, at some point in history, the Jewish people began to think, oh, temple worship is really about what's convenient for me, <laughs> what makes sense for me, what's easiest for me. We're going we're gonna to bring the merchants in, so we're going to bring the sellers in, because then I can, I can get, my, I can get my, my cattle and my sheep and my, my doves easily, and I can go to the temple. They forgot about the, the first priority. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and God called Israel to be a blessing to the nations. I want to share a quote from you. So this kind of brings it into our context and how we can do this as the church, like how, how we sometimes negatively do this. And Tom Rayner, he's, a, he's a, a kind of a church leadership expert, a PhD, a good stuff, but he contrasts the difference between an entitled church member and a biblical church member. I'm going to read you a little section, and it's pretty stiff. (laughs) It's pretty challenging. But I actually want to read it because I want to match the tone that Jesus had when he cast out the money changers, When when he cast out the buyers and sellers. We want to encounter that Jesus here tonight. And so I'm just going to read. I don't have it on the screen. He says this. 
The entitled church member treats the church more like a country club than a church. They view their financial offerings as dues to get perks and privileges. They make pastors and other church leaders cringe when they say, you do know we pay your salary. The entitled church member is the antithesis of the biblical church member described in 1 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul describes that type of church member as giving, functioning, and sacrificing. He or she is a member of the body of Christ for the greater good of the church. Others come first. An entitled church member expects his worship style. She expects her color of the rooms and temperature in the worship center. They expect their pastor to jump when they call. After all, they think it's our church. We should be able to get what we want. The entitled church member resists change constantly. These church members do not want anything that upsets their way of doing church to be introduced to the congregation. Church is about their perks, their desires, and their comforts. Biblical church members will gladly accept change to reach people with the gospel and to bring glory to God. Entitled church members are in churches to get their needs met. I think that's pretty challenging, especially for me. I don't share this as an accusation or a judgment, but as a challenge. May we never become this. And maybe something in there spoke to you and you said, wow, maybe I am a little entitled sometimes. Maybe I make Christianity into consumer Christianity when I make it about me and my wants and my preferences. Well, if that's happening right now in your heart, just confess it. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Like, I don't mean to make this about me. Just confess it and repent. And guess what? Jesus forgives. <laughs> Jesus just overwhelms you with grace and love. He just forgives. It's like, okay, we're going to start anew. We're going to make the main thing the main thing. And so let's confess those ways that we do make church and Christianity about us. Let's begin to focus on what it's really about. So I started with the question, you know, what is consumer Christianity? And now I want to talk about the antidote. What's the fix? What's the solution to consumer Christianity And the answer is prayer. Prayer. See, within Jesus' call, well, within Jesus' condemnation of their lack of prayer, like my house is obviously not a house of prayer because you've made it into this place where buying and selling is happening. There's also a positive call, isn't there? Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer. Well, that's a, that's a future indicative. That means it will happen. <laughs> My house will be a house of prayer. That's actually a promise of hope. <laughs> that's good news. My house will not always be a dinner, Roberts. My house will be a house of prayer. My house will be a house that, that isn't consuming, but it's the giving and, and experience, experiencing true life. So what does this kind of prayer do? Well, prayer, it teaches us to love God and others. I want to look back down at our passage, verses 47 and 48, and read them. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. I think it's pretty interesting that the 
the, the people were trying to kill Jesus are the, the, the religious leaders who, who built their economic system, they built their stability uh, on these finances, on merchants. This is how they made their money. They wanted to kill Jesus. But the people, they loved him. Because something in the people recognized that, yeah, we've been just exposed to like this false consumeristic religion, and we know it's not true. But when they encountered Jesus, the source of eternal life, the source of joy, and the only one who could ever satisfy them, they hung on his words. <laughs> and that can be our story too. If you've been looking to other things to satisfy you, even good things like, like coming here, and you keep being disappointed and and you experience that sense of desperation, will I ever be satisfied? Well, there's good news, there's gospel news because Jesus can satisfy you. It says all the people, all the people were hanging on his words. I think that means the Gentiles, those foreigners. They were coming to Jerusalem and they were experiencing the, the everlasting life, the eternal life that only Christ can offer. As they, as they sat and they listened to his words. See, it's as we encounter God and others, and we do this through prayer, that we begin to feel satisfied. As we, as we, as we begin to focus our prayers outwards, and not just on meeting our needs, but encountering Christ and, and, and sharing Christ with those around us, that we begin to know peace. Now, when I pray, I usually start with all of my needs <laughs> and all of my wants. Lord, here's this, here's that. And for many of us, myself included, this may take place for years and years where when I pray, it's about me. But I hope that as we pray, and as we experience the true and living God, that he'll begin to turn the way we pray so that it's focused on God, our Father who is in heaven and it's focused on others. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come in this world. God, change the way I pray. Make it an antidote to, to, to my self-serving consumeristic mentalities. Because that's the way we've been wired. God, undo my wiring. Rewire me so that I come to you for my energy and my life. Over time, Christianity can become, even when we come to it for our own needs and our own wants, it can become about just worship and knowing God and loving others. So we can pray for this. This can be something that we challenge ourselves to pray for. God, would you make my faith less about me and more about you? Would you, would you make Christianity in my life, in the life of our church, not about meeting our own needs, but about loving you and loving others? Now, the first thing is that prayer teaches us to love God and others. And the second is that prayer is worship. So if consumer Christianity prevents others from worshiping, and prayer is the antidote, then prayer is worship. 
So when we come to the one true God and we pray, we're worshiping. What are we doing? We're saying, God, you are God. I am not. (laughs) You are the one true God. I am not the one true God. Here's all my needs. Here's all my wants. Here's all my faults, all my sins. Forgive me. Help me focus on you. Help me love others. We're worshiping him. That's an act of worship. That's a song. At some point in our lives, if you want to grow up as a Christian, if you ever want to to reach maturity as a Christian, you have to realize that nothing else can satisfy you but God himself. If you never realize that, first you're going to go through life impoverished, always looking for something more. You'll never truly experience the life that Christ can offer. Christ can offer so much life, so much satisfaction. He can offer something that we can't buy. No Amazon.com dash button will ever give you what Christ has. Jesus does something pretty interesting when he drives out the buyers and the sellers. Jesus is doing away with the sacrificial system. (laughs) Because they needed to buy, they needed to sell in order to meet the sacrificial system. And I told you earlier in the sermon about a similar occasion in John chapter two. So apparently Jesus cleansed the temple on multiple occasions. Well, in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, it records the response of some of the Jews, and they seem to recognize that Jesus is doing something more significant than just driving out money changers and, and sellers. He's actually making a change. So John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they, replied, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, there's a connection between Jesus driving out those doves and those, those cattle, those calves and, and the sheep. And after he had driven them all out, there's still a lamb standing in the temple courtyard. There's the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb. Jesus can drive out the lambs and the sheep and the doves Because he is the one perfect lamb we need. He's the sacrifice. He's the one who can come to the cross and present himself as that perfect substitute. Paying the penalty for our sins. See, Jesus Jesus takes the the penalty, the punishment that we deserve for, for looking elsewhere for satisfaction. Jesus loads it up puts it on his back, and he goes to the cross as the lamb, as the perfect sacrifice. He dies for our idolatry. 
He dies for the ways that I look for satisfaction in other things. And the good news, the gospel news, is that he rises again. He rises from the grave, conquering sin and death. He's the lamb that died and rose again. He's the lamb that can take away my sins. And now that he has won eternal life, he has experienced it in himself, he is, he is now able to give it, overflow, come and experience eternal life, experience eternal satisfaction through Christ, through this lamb. So what are you looking to in this world to satisfy you? What are you holding on to that can't give you peace? I can think of many, many things in my life. And that's between me and my Lord. What's between you and your Lord? What do you need to give so that you can have those open hands to receive, to receive Christ, to receive the perfect land, to receive what Christ has done for you on the cross? What do you need? Prayer, as we begin to, to focus on God, focus on Christ Jesus, it's an, it's an antidote. It can help heal us. But it's not just like the act of talking into the sky. You have to talk to the Lamb. You have to talk to the Father. The antidote to consumer Christianity is prayer. I want to challenge us all this week that when we are tempted, when we encounter those moments in our own life, when, we're, when, when we think, oh, if I only had this thing, I would be satisfied, or if I only could get this experience, I would be happy, to just stop and, and pray and to, to receive the satisfaction that Christ can offer, but just to stop and pray. Now, if we all did that one day this week, or if we, if we all did that one moment every day this week, so there's about 55 of us, and if we all took a moment each day, all 55 of us, to focus on Christ and maybe say a prayer, that would be 385 moments of finding our satisfaction in Jesus. And if we did that all month long, Every day, that would be 1,705 moments of finding our satisfaction in Jesus instead of this world, instead of religion. And if we did it all year long for 365 days, that would be 20,705 moments of finding our peace and our satisfaction in Jesus. And if we continue to do this as God's people, we continue to learn what it means to find our satisfaction and peace in him. It just keeps growing and growing. And those numbers at the beginning, they seemed pretty big, right? $11 billion on movie tickets in a year. But we have all of eternity to find our satisfaction every day, day by day in Christ. We... Our joy, our collective joy and satisfaction will make those things look like a drop in the bucket. Because 10,000 years from now, we will say, wow, look how satisfied we are in the Lamb, in our King. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you 
for the ways that you can satisfy us. I confess on my behalf, but then I also confess on our behalf, on behalf of this whole church. God, we, we look to each other and we look to even church, to going through the motions, to the things this world has to offer. We look to those things before we look to you for our satisfaction and peace. We are sorry. We confess this. And we ask for you to come and to renew us. We accept your forgiveness. You do forgive us. Thank you. You have forgiven us in Christ on that cross. As we repent, we're just, we're just renewed. We're renewed right now in this moment. We're tasting a little bit of that eternal satisfaction. Father, would this not be a one-time Saturday afternoon moment, but would this be a day-by-day moment? Would we experience satisfaction and joy in you? Would you satisfy us? Would your son, Jesus Christ, fill us up to the brim so that we would overflow with joy and happiness and peace in Christ Jesus through a relationship with you? Father, we love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.